Hey Create Me listeners, this is Rebecca Craver. Hope you're enjoying the summer hiatus of re-released episodes. Today is our final re-release with the interview with Reverend Dr. Nola Kanaus as she talks history of music in the Moravian Church and all the ways that that music is living today. Welcome to Create in Me, a conversation about worship, creativity, and the art at the heart of how we experience God and share that experience with others. You gave us life for the garden, life for the starting out. You gave us hope for the future, hope found within our doubt. You gave us all Brian and I uh, welcome the Reverend Dr. Anola Reed Canals, the director of the Moravian Music Foundation, where for more than 25 years, she has worked with church musicians and pastors on music and worship planning. She has studied the history and theology, especially of Moravian church music. She was a music editor for the 1995 Moravian Book of Worship, and her book, The Music of the Moravian Church in America, is the go-to introduction to Moravian music for scholars and professional musicians. We're really glad to have you with us, Nola. Thank you. This is fun. Yeah. It gives us the chance to talk about things that are important to the Moravian Church and beyond. Well, and in many ways, Nola, the reason that Create and Me started is because you invited Brian and I to be a part of that new hymnal exploration committee and part of that conversation, which sort of sparked in us the need and the, the capacity for us to have some conversation around worship and creativity and music that wasn't necessarily happening in, in every way that it could. It's, it's you that we can kind of give a little credit to. Well, and it's the work of the Lord amongst us all. Number one, created all of us to be creative and somehow gives us the spark to want to share that with one another and to notice that in one another. I think the very creative gifts that God gives each of us are given to encourage the church. And when I say encourage, a lot of the times I put a hyphen between the N and the courage. Because mm. in, encourage is, you know, we tend to think about it as bucking somebody up and saying, go for it, you're doing great. But encourage is actually to give courage to all of us as we move into what has, what seems like an uncertain future. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I know kind of struck me in our conversations was your knowledge of the history of Moravian music um, and being able to kind of say that when Moravians are at their most creative, they're also have been most active in, in mission and ministry. Like that there's, that there's a, a parallel between the ways our creativity kind of exposes itself and the ways that the church is experiencing uncertainty or the chaos of change and transition. And so I'd love to hear you kind of talk a little bit more about that and what you've seen in your study of the history of our, of our church and of our music um, and how that, how that looks kind of from a historical perspective. Okay. It's, it's sort of been a growing realization for me. I didn't start out my studies in Moravian music with any idea that there'd be any parallel between uh, musical creativity and fruitfulness, say in mission or reaction to stressful circumstances and the like. And 
as I studied uh, Moravian hymnody and the history of Moravian hymnody, part of that um, in working on the book on the music of the Moravian Church in America, one of the chapters is on the history of hymnody. It became clear that we were, we as the Moravians were just incredibly prolific in hymn writing and publishing hymnals in the 16th and 17th centuries before the 30 years war, before we were driven underground. And then again in the Zinzendorf era through the end of the 18th century. Both of those times in the 16th, 17th century, we were a new group of Christians learning how to live this life that we felt God, God had called us to. Then in the middle 18th century, we were also a new group having experienced the, the, the birth of parenthood, the renewal of the August 13th, 1727 renewal by the Holy Spirit and the drive to go into the mission. And it, it seemed as though I just noticed that, wait a minute, this is where we, when we've been writing the most hymns and this is when we've been doing the most mission work. This is when we've been spreading the gospel, where we've been going to everywhere in the world that nobody else wants to go to. And those just seem to go in parallel. So I've been exploring in my mind why might that be? Mm -hmm. You'd sort of think in a way when you're so much involved in mission work that you wouldn't have time to sit back and write hymns and reflect and do creative work. Or that when you were doing all your creative work, you really wouldn't be thinking about going out and traveling around the world, not knowing if you'd ever come home again or ever see your family again. But it seems as though we do. It seems as though they go hand in hand. And, and I think that that makes some sense to me. Because the more, the more you have experienced talking with people who didn't know the love of the Savior. You know, we don't have to tell people they're sinners. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows they goof up. Everybody knows they do things that are wrong or say things they shouldn't have said or don't say the things they should have. We all know that. The, the news is that God loves us and that God saves us, that, that, that there is a Savior. Uh, that's the news. And when we share that with people and someone comes to see that and realize that they're not hopeless anymore, their joy, here's that word encourage again, that their joy encourages us, filled and deepens our joy. And it has to come out somehow. I remember being, well, okay, this is very personal. I remember when I, when I realized I was very much in love with the man I've now been married to for 33 years, and I found myself listening to music and dancing around the living room, and I am not a dancer. This would not have been pretty to watch. Nobody else was home, but the joy had to go somewhere, mm. had to be expressed. And I think that's what happens with our faith when we see other people coming to the joy of salvation and the joy of life in the Lord we have this joy that has to go somewhere. It has to be expressed. And for many of our ancestors in the faith and many people today, that's what's happened. We, we sing it. We, we paint it. Um, we build it. We craft it. We, we do artistically wonderful things that then share that joy. And that happened in the 16th and 17th centuries when the, the, the church was undergoing persecution um, in the Czech Republic, what's now the Czech Republic, all of Central Europe. During the time we were, we were illegal a lot of the time, we were stressed, we were struggling to keep our lives and our freedom, we were looking for other denominational bodies, but we knew the love of the Lord and we knew what it was like to live in community following God's guidance. And that joy just went everywhere. You know, all the hymnals that we published in the 16th, 17th century and in the 18th century, they're not all just 
hymns written by Moravians. They are the best of the hymns that they could find from everywhere else, but there's still an immense proportion of hymns written by Moravians uh, from those eras uh, in lots of languages and lots of styles that it just, it seems to make sense to me. And then the more you write and sing about the joy of loving Jesus, the more you have to tell it to everybody. Hmm. So I think, I think they just feed off each other. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, what would you say, Nola, about the, I, I don't think it's like the flip side or, you know, a, a contrast with that, but also you talked about when times uh, of stress, when the church or individual believers are dealing with very intense, difficult situations. So songs of lament or, or songs of, of really wrestling and engaging with, you know, hope and songs about really striving or seeking uh, some kind of peace or comfort. Interestingly, I haven't thought about it like this. I don't, there's not a lot of hymns of hmm. lament in our hmm. past. Um, and that's funny because you know there would have been reason yeah. for it. But they also, they didn't, they didn't write about doing missions hmm. either. They didn't write the songs that sound like, you know, fight songs, pep songs, oh. go tell the world. They wrote hmm. about God. They wrote about Jesus. They wrote about the Holy Spirit being with us. So, you know, you can see that. I, I liken it to um, Beethoven. I mean, this is funny to think about Moravian hymn writers like Beethoven. But Beethoven, his sunniest, most joyful sounding piece of music was written shortly after he found out he was going deaf and there wasn't going to be anything anybody could do mm. about it. So the, the, the expression is deep. It's not a, it doesn't sound like a direct correlation. Yeah. And our ancestors in the faith didn't write about their sadness. They wrote about the goodness of God. That's interesting. So the focal point wasn't on the circumstance. It, it was on, on what's constant. Right what's what's certain exactly and that is the love of god yeah yes wow. exactly and that's and that that's very powerful through that there's one hymn though that comes to mind um it's a zinzendorf hymn it's a prayer to the holy spirit i'm going to reach around and hope i don't lose the sound here i'm moving to find um if i can find it i can read it to you a lot better than i can just describe it now pray to god the holy ghost anew who points our hearts to our Redeemer true, that he to us all needful gifts may bring, which flow from Christ's own merit. Thus we sing, have mercy, Lord. When we first translated it, we said, okay, this sounds pretty good. You know, the, the Holy Spirit points, uh, points us to Jesus, which is true. Uh, the Holy Spirit, we pray that the Holy Spirit will give us all needful gifts and those gifts flow from Jesus Christ. And that's wonderful. So we sing, have mercy, <laughs> which, which we interpret as sometimes the needful gifts might not be the mm -hmm. ones you want. The gifts most needed for your circumstances might not be what you most wish you had to have. Uh, there are times when the gift of administration might be the most important gift, but it's not nearly as much fun as the gift of singing. Um, the gift of endurance is not nearly as much fun as the gift of hospitality, but the needful gifts are the point there. So, but again, they didn't sing about <clears throat> circumstances as much. They sang about the mm. love of God and the faithfulness and reliability of God. I wonder if that would have been found maybe in, more in the, the other as aspects of worship 
that would have been practiced by the communities. Mm-hmm. You know, if that, those laments, Brian, if maybe they would have been um, connected to scripture reading from Isaiah or yeah. uh, Jeremiah uh-huh. or mm-hmm. a sermon about mm-hmm. here we are in this foreign land. Yeah. How do we sing, how do we sing our mm-hmm. song here? Exactly. Or the church so, litany, uh-huh. litany for sure. Yeah. Well, and the church litany and the litany of the wounds um, and some of the other historical things that focused on Jesus suffering. Because they focused so much on the suffering of Christ as as if to say he was mm. in this with us. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever we think we're going through, he's he had it mm. worse. But there, there's a wonderful line. Um, this doesn't really immediately relate, but there's a wonderful line. The litany is is not has not been a static form. Uh, the 18th, in the 18th century, there were several different um, editions of it, several different alterations. And one in particular that I loved has a line in it that I wish we still had. It says, may no one have to eat alone. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you think sometimes you want to eat alone, but they, may no one's circumstances be such that they have to be alone to eat, that they don't have yeah. a community. You're right, Nola. So, that should be in that, there. That kind I of, like that a lot. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. We need to when 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 next there's a revision of the litany, we need to look at some of the historical ones and see. All right, what are the circumstances that 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 those might have recognized that we don't anymore? That maybe we need. To? Well, not to be tongue in cheek, but I think that that is what's yeah. so interesting. I think looking historically at our music and at the development of worship is that I think we often um, get caught up and I want to imagine that most people, whenever they have been, have done that, that this is the way we Mm -hmm. worship. This is the way we sing. This is the way we do this. And that, that Mm -hmm. what's true Mm -hmm. is that yes, to all of those, you know, that that the way we Mm -hmm. worship, the way we sing, the way we create has these aspects that are similar or the same, but there is Mm -hmm. so much, there's so much more and that changing how we worship is actually one of the ways that the church has been faithful to God um, and, and being exactly. able to share these new experiences um, that may resonate with past ones, but that are still coming out of a certain time and place. You know, I know there are, there are people, I mean, you know, who are huge fans of Zinzendorf um, and that's great. Mm-hmm. But just because Zinzendorf wrote a hymn doesn't mean that it is the best hymn to, to be sung right yes. now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also doesn't mean that we shouldn't sing it, you know, like that there's, there's some kind mm-hmm. of continuity. And I think that that's the interesting thing that I have learned um, over the years is that, you know, you kind of grow up and if you grow up in one congregation, that's your experience. And so until you go to mm-hmm. a different place and go, oh, other people do it differently, it's still feels good, still makes, makes sense. Sometimes we don't learn that. It's really hard to sort of know that like change is actually a part of faithful worship. Exactly. So it's great to hear a historian kind of put it out there. Like this is what, this is what's normal. Several years ago, five or six, every, every other year, um, a graduate hymnology class from Bob Jones University comes to Winston-Salem on Good Friday. And they tour Basabra, the first Moravian settlement here. They tour Old Salem. They have lunch. And they come here and spend some time looking at the various hymnals we have. They stick around through the afternoon, and they go to the Good Friday Love Feast at Home Moravian Church, which is an incredible experience and something I always look forward to. 
At the end of that service, these usually eight or 10 graduate students who've never been to a Moravian service, after the postlude, they are always sitting there in shock at the quality of the singing and the beauty of the music and the joy that's in the Good Friday love feast. Mm. Because home church deals with the Good Friday evening as if we've had the crucifixion service in the afternoon. The evening is like the family gathered together after the funeral and being together, just loving one another and loving the person who died and yet knowing that the, what's the real end of the story. There's an immense amount of incredibly joyful singing in that service, and it just about raises the roof. At the end of that service, one time I was talking with these young people who were there, and one of them said, well, if we went to another Moravian church on Good Friday, would it be like this? And I said, no. Yeah. And they said, if we went to another love feast, would it be like this? I said, mm. no. And they said, would they sing the same hymns? I said, not necessarily. And they said, would they read the same scriptures? I said, well, probably most Moravian churches would be reading about the burial of Jesus tonight, yes. Would they have the same choir anthem? No. Would they serve love feast at the same way? No. Then what's the consistency? <clears throat> what's a, what is it that holds you all together? And I said, a love feast, the thing that holds a love feast together and that holds Moravian worship together, I think, is the selection of your hymns and anthems and liturgies, all your worship materials to support a theme yeah that is ex- expressed throughout all of your worship that somehow highlights a truth of our faith. Yes. Yeah. And it's going to be, it's, and that's it. Yeah. That's it. So we can sing whatever we want to sing and change however we need to change it to do it. I mean, I don't think there's any music, for instance, that, that by its very nature shouldn't be allowed in worship. I think there's some words that aren't appropriate for worship, but I don't think there's any specific style of music that you say, oh, heavens no. When I was in Nepal 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago now, um, I asked them, I was leading a music and worship workshop, and they were wanting to learn to sing in four-part harmony and to write hymns in traditional 18th, 19th century style music. And so I said, but you have this wonderful musical culture that surrounds you. You have a very rich musical culture in Nepal. What about using some of that? And they said, no, we don't want to use that in our Christian worship because that music is associated with the worship of false gods. That music was associated with the Hindu faith for this small community carving out its existence in the midst of a culture that's very foreign, that that could be very hostile to it. They felt like they needed their music to help create and form and strengthen their identity. Mm. So that made sense for them the music of their culture was not acceptable in worship. But that's, that's not because that music is evil. It's because of their cultural situation. And I, and I appreciate that, and I respect that, because they're recognizing the value that music can have to form and strengthen a community and to express and strengthen our faith, to, to lead us farther in the worship and work of our God. Another thing that happened in Nepal when we were talking about, we were writing a hymn. Um, and they were working very hard. We figured out what tune they, they, everybody knew the tune to Amazing Grace. So we were writing new words that went with that tune. We figured out what sort of the theme wanted to be. And they started throwing out lines and working out rhymes and all of that. And I realized that, that at the end of the day, that everything they threw out was first person singular. Christ went to Calvary mm. for me. He, he, he saved my soul. He took care of me. I love Jesus. It was all first person singular. I went back the next day and, and sat with them and said, you know, brothers and sisters, 
you live in a we community. You live Christian Hearts and Love United. Absolutely. Everything you are singing, everything you're writing is about me and Jesus. It's not about us. And I realized why that happened, because most of the music they were singing was the more Christian pop style, what has been called contemporary Christian music, which most of that is written, has been written, was written as the personal testimony of the singer. So that's what they were used to. I'm trading my sorrows. It's not we're trading our sorrows, that sort of thing. So when I said that to them, you could see light bulbs go on all around. And we rewrote the last couple of stanzas of the hymn they were working on to be, you know, but not for me by myself. Christ came not for me alone. Christ came for all the lost. And we then will bear witness to that. So that what we sing expresses what we feel what we believe, and it shapes what we believe. If all I sing is Jesus makes my heart rejoice, then I might not, over time, I'm not going to care very much what you feel and what you think. So, you know, it's just, it's it's an intriguing, there's all so many intriguing ways to go with this. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that seems to me to be another tension in our worship between, you know, the Lord's Prayer uh, give give mm-hmm. us this day our yes. and and Psalm mm-hmm. twenty three. The Lord is my shepherd; he maketh me to lie yes. down. And I think yep. that's a, that's mm-hmm. both are, are legitimate. But I think you can err on the side of exclusively only wanting that first person singular because of how that makes me feel about my relationship mm-hmm. with my Savior, uh, as opposed to a much yes. more community oriented, you know, for us for mm-hmm. us. And that's dangerous mm-hmm. too, right? Because then there's also the us and them kind of dichotomy. But but how do you have mm-hmm. as as big a sense of that of that community, that koinonia, as possible? And how does your hymnody reflect that? Or how does it meet the need, pastorally or congregationally? Like you had said, Rebecca, mm-hmm. maybe there's a specific pastoral circumstance where, you know, the very first person uh, testimonial kind of music is is what's needed. To your point, all about what maybe sets Moravian worship apart is that idea of the Zingstunde concept that every, mm-hmm. everything is selected very intentionally around a scriptural theme and, and is, is unified in that way. That that's really powerful to me. That's definitely an ideal and a goal. Anytime I sit down to, to think through some worship and, and work on that with others. Mm-hmm. So, I'm thinking about the, the, the we, I dichotomy. Hmm very conscious and careful decision was made for the 1995 book of worship in the Easter morning liturgy, Hmm. the Easter morning liturgy in the 1969 hymnal, of course, believes begins. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. And then there's the hymn. And then it says, I believe in the one only God, father, son, and Holy spirit. I believe in the name of the only begotten son of God. I believe in the Holy spirit. I believe that by Holy baptism, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 1995, we believe in the one, only God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We believe in the only Son of God. I'm reading directly here. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe by holy baptism. And the responses are this, we truly believe. Mm. Then you get a little farther along where it says, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the response is, This we truly believe. This is my Lord who redeemed me, a lost and condemned human creature from sin, from death, and from the power of the devil, etc., etc. Christ has done this so that I may be his own. 
So it shifts in that paragraph to say, yes, this has been the faith of the church. This, I claim it as my very own. Uh And then we go back to, we believe. So, but there is, that was a deliberate conscious thought, thought out decision by the liturgy section of the, to say, yes, it's sooner or later, we can say, we believe all this, all we want to, but there's a little distance in the we stuff. Yeah. This is the faith of the church almost gives me a little room to say, well, I don't have to hold every bit of it. Yeah. But then this is my Lord. (laughs) He has done this. So I may be his own. It gives me the opportunity and the challenge to claim it. There's something very special about the, the one of the lines of Jesus makes my heart rejoice. Yea, my very name he knows. So yes, for, for us, for us, the lamb was slain. Yea, my very name he knows. Not just for all of us, even me. Yeah. <laughs> so we have, to, we have to have the both. Yeah. We have to recognize God. God didn't, didn't save us one at a time. He did save us one at a time, yes. But he saved us to be in community. Yeah. You know, the, same, the same way God's own self is three. God is community, and God calls us to share in that community. That's just, to me, one of God's greatest gifts to us. I wonder if sometimes worship either risks, like, insulating us from one another, if, if it's only ever exclusively the I, me, mine kind of, kind of worship, and then everybody is, is together, cocooned off from each other within the, the particularity of their own experience. And in what, in what mm-hmm. ways does worship make us more aware that we are worshiping together with people who are grieving and people who are rejoicing? We are, we are worshiping together with people yes. who are, are mature in the faith and people who are really maybe just taking some first steps. We, we are, and that that's a very powerful thing. It is. And it strikes me that if all of our songs are joyful songs, yeah. then we don't leave much room for the person who's grieving. Mm-hmm. And the person mm-hmm. who's grieving begins to feel like there must be something wrong with me because I'm not feeling that joy. Yeah. Um, I must be a failure as a Christian. I had a, a medical scare this last summer that we thought was colon cancer and it turned out not to be cancer at all. And so mm. many people said to me, God is so good. God's been so good to you. I said, yes, God has been very good to me. And I want them want to believe I'd still say that if the results had not been so yeah. good, God would still be good. Even if I was, fighting cancer yeah Uh, god would still be answering prayers even you know in some way so but but we have to leave room for those who are grieving and for those who are unsure Mm. and i think it's maybe maybe the fact that there aren't very many hymns of lament in our past maybe that's a shortcoming of of our past Mm. maybe the fact that we're writing more of them now and singing more of them now is a strength of today's church um, I love the, in the contemporary Christian thing, I love the, the, there's a song, Thy Will Be Done, and it starts out, you know, I know I heard your voice and I followed through and this is where I am. And I don't want to believe my broken heart is part of your plan. Mm. It's like the Psalms of Lament. The thing that's wonderful about them all and about the songs of Lament is that we don't quit talking to God. The relationship is still there. Even We don't have to understand it all. We don't have to get it. It doesn't all have to be rosy. God's still there and I'm still going to yell at God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and God's still going to hear it. And, and we need to do that. We need to give freedom to do that. We need to find a way to let people know it's okay if you're here this morning and you're not so sure of all this. And if you're sad and you can't sing, let other people sing for you and they will carry you. I tell people if you 
go to church and they go to worship and there's a hymn that you just don't like, sing it anyway because you're singing for somebody else. You're singing their favorite hymn. And that's a gift you can give. I do think, uh, as I think about the current situation that the church is facing, um, that is certainly, lament is certainly something that I miss and need. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know mm-hmm. uh, for our, our synod this year, um, a colleague and I kind of wrote to the worship committee and we were like, hey, can we do something? Uh, because we need, you know, the two of us, we were kind of, we were very selfish about it, but we were like, if it's just us, we need some time to just sort of hold the pain that, that we live with in our ministry as, as we kind of experience kind of the grief of what it looks like to see the church as we know it change in a way that is, means loss for some of our Mm -hmm. congregations. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and it isn't that we don't understand, we want to be joyful when we're all together and these other things, but we really were like, there has to be a place that we can just sort of sit with this thing Mm -hmm. that is big and painful and recognize that that is also part of how God is present with us. You know, that God isn't not present in that because it's painful. And I think that goes then back to our experience of Jesus and saying, you know, like Jesus knew what pain was and Jesus was present to that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the promise that, you know, that we believe that we proclaim on Easter Sunday is that this most painful and final act of death is not the end. Mm. Um, And I think that there is, there's so much power in our story. And I, and I also think that we are, um, at least myself, I can only speak for me, I guess, but like, I feel like sometimes I am most reticent to sort of hold on to the power of that story, you know, like that, like, Oh, Mm -hmm. well that's, yeah, it's really powerful, but that's really scary because that means I have to really let it all go and, and lose all control that I feel like I have, whether or not I really have it or not. And, and say, I'm going to let this go. And I'm going to trust that, that God who I have experienced in this tremendous amount of love for me and for the world has got this and that Mm -hmm. this promise that I proclaim is true. And I think that there is just so much about the way we worship that can help us to sort of hold that and to, to do that in ways. Like I think about the historical church and, you know, those people that you're talking about who are producing this music and, and creating this artistry were also exiles from their homes. They were leaving forever their families to follow the gospel mandate to preach and baptize and, and welcome people into the faith. And I just think, you know, we, we can't lose that it's sort of, you know, the balance has to be there that, that that was happening as they were creating these hymns and it's so important that we kind of recognize that these weren't people who were living lives that I'm sure always felt joyful or felt full of, of life. Like they were probably struggling in many ways, but that wasn't reflected because the struggle was overshadowed maybe by the joy of, of following in the gospel and sharing that with other people. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I look at it and I think to myself, I'm like, are we not, am I not doing that? Like, have I not kind of pulled myself far enough away from the comforts of my life to be able to have a really good perspective on, on what's really important about what God is calling me to do. 
And, and I think that's just a tension that, that I kind of live with and try to pay attention to. And I wonder how many other people mm-hmm. find that as well in terms of their, in, in terms of their worship, like are there places where we could help um, by creating worship space that opens us up wherever we need to be opened up? Mm-hmm. Well, there is, there is such an incredible tension between what our faith tells us is joy and what we hear the rest of the world say we need to be happy. Yeah. And the joy that we all have experienced at some point or in some way is inexplicable to 21st century culture. That that, that just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work that way. What do you mean, you know, your father's deathbed was a joyful occasion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What do you mean Hmm. you take a call somewhere else that's going to pay you significantly less and you're going to have to up and move? Why is this good? What do you mean this is a good thing? Um, Hmm. What do you mean you're going to turn down that pay raise because your church needs it more than you do? You know, and I've seen people do this and they know the joy that the rest of the world has nothing that has no comprehension of and can't because it's rooted in the truth of Jesus. And this is what we need to be doing in our worship is somehow continuing to proclaim that truth counter to what everybody's going to hear the other six days and 23 hours of the week. If that's all we see them is for an hour a week, what are they hearing the rest of that time? What can we do to encourage our people that the stuff that gets thrown at them the rest of the week isn't true? They're very credible lies. You know, and I'm not thinking an us and them mentality. I just have this incredible amount of pain for the people, those people all around us who who are captured by what the rest of the world tells you you must do to be happy. And they are worried all the time. You know, do I have enough? You know, do I have enough of this? Do I have enough of that? I need to get more. I need to take care of myself. And it's all, I, it just it just breaks my heart. How do we feed these people? How do we, what do we say or do other than try to live as transparent lives of joy as we can and to sing and to worship the God who is true and faithful and, and love no matter what. And I think that's what our, I think that's what our, our, our Moravian worship tries to be is it tries to express that and to strengthen that, that belief and to, help our people you know it's to worship god it's to be to recognize god you are god and that means i am not and that means nothing in the rest of this world is because you are Hmm. nola so we've talked a a bit about Mm -hmm. history and about how the church has Mm -hmm. been um what do you see Mm -hmm. now kind of in the current in the current church how do you see as you've been looking at kind of the historical pattern um, do you see some of that history starting to kind of come back around um, in terms of, you know, we've, we've kind of recognized that the church in many ways feels like it's in a crisis point, which, um, you know, is opportunity hmm. as well as sort of the the danger of, of what crisis can be or can feel like to us. Mm-hmm. What are, what are you mm-hmm. seeing in terms of the creativity around you, especially in Moravian music 
and 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 the and the use of it maybe since you would have your your fingers on the pulse of that in a way that uh, many of us would not the the number of people who have contacted me in the last 25 years to say I've written a song or I've been thinking about a song or I want to write or I've got a hymn or can you help me learn how there's a a spirit growing among a lot of our people that's urging them to write to express their faith somehow and maybe they don't have all the skills they need to do it yet, but they're wanting to learn. One of the things when we were working on the committee to explore, we needed a new um, North American Moravian, Moravian hymnal. One of the questions we asked in our survey was, as, have you ever written a hymn? If not, would you like to learn how? Do you read music? If not, would you like to? The number of people who said, yes, I would like to go to a hymn writing workshop. I would like to learn how to write a liturgy. I would like to learn how to read music. It was astounding. Mm -hmm. We published in 2013 um, the collection Sing to the Lord a New Song. There's something like 80 new songs and hymns in there. There were over 350 submitted for that publication. Now, the other 270 that we didn't publish weren't bad songs. Most wow. of them, though, weren't very well crafted for congregational singing, which was the purpose of this book. Mm -hmm. Most of those others that we did not publish would be wonderful for solo singing or small choir or unison parts or something like that, but just not as congregational song. We still have that collection of them. And, and you know, one of my regrets right now is that we haven't done much with it yet. There are still people out there writing music and writing a lot of music. Anthems for choirs, handbell pieces, brass pieces. Uh, we held a Worldwide Moravian Unity Brass Festival uh, in Winston-Salem last summer where we ask brass players from around the Moravian world to send us their own arrangements so we could do all newly arranged music. We did. We had more music than we could use, wow. written and arranged by Moravians around the world. Uh, there is a lot of interest and energy in composing music and writing hymn texts. A lot of people that are writing hymn texts are pastors. That is consistent with our history. Mm. Awful lot of our hymn writers in our history were pastors. That doesn't say if you're not a pastor, you shouldn't write hymns. Absolutely not. Awful lot of lay people wrote hymns in our history and still are. And newly composed tunes. I'm sitting here at my desk right now looking at the piano where there's music written by living Moravian composers that's published for choirs. I see an immense growth of musical cre and, and artistic poetic creativity most of my work's focused on the North American Moravian Church, of course, but there's probably similar things going on in other areas. I just see a lot of creative energy here. And when I look at the work uh, that our Board of World Mission is doing and mission teams from around the country going here, there, and everywhere doing all sorts of things, outreach activities, new and emerging ministries, reaching out, I see that same kind of grassroots energy going into spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am very encouraged for the future of Moravian faith as as Moravian Christians. Not I don't know what the institutional Moravian church is going to look like. It will change. As Rebecca said earlier, that's one of the ways we're faithful, is that we see how do we need to change, and we do it. Uh, that's marvelous. But I'm very hopeful for the ministry that we have to do yet. I mean, Jesus called us to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick and imprisoned, welcome the stranger. There's plenty of that to do. 
And I see a lot of us focusing on doing that and writing a lot of new music and a new new words as we're doing it. I'm I'm very excited about our future. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean we don't have a lot of work to do. That doesn't mean we don't have problems. That doesn't mean there's no cause for lament. Yeah. Change is hard. And some things that, that we love will be lost. That is very true. But the God who calls us together is not lost and will not lose us. Thinking about the litany also is, I mean, wanting to go back to that and wondering what we might need to, to look at that to make it even more useful today. 200 years ago, um, as part of the litany service where they, where they prayed for families, they would pause the service and do marriages, do weddings. Oh, my goodness. If they prayed, they might, they might do that as part of the litany. They might do a baptism as part of the litany. What we consider the rites of the church could be incorporated into that one larger structure. So maybe we look at something like that, where we see a large structure of that service, where somebody said once, if you've prayed the litany, there's nothing left to pray for. <laughs> um, especially if you pray for the sick in your congregation, especially brother so-and-so who's having surgery tomorrow. You pray for those who travel, especially our mission team of this person, this person, this person, now going to serve wherever. So I think, I think we have a very rich heritage to pull from to help us harness the new creative energies that God is pouring into us these days and pouring through us into the world. I think that's exciting. I mean, to, to really, to really focus on how, on how the ways that where we have come from can inform and, and give, and give courage to the present because it is so easy to look back and be like, Oh, that was the best time in the church. That was a golden period. And, and then to sort of lament how we are different. I mean, I think we do that in so many ways you know, look back, well, it was, it was better when, I think it can be hard to develop that capacity in ourselves to look at the present and to really um, rejoice in it, whatever it is, even if it's a difficult present. That is what I kind of, I envision as I think about creating worship, especially in a pastoral setting where I know the congregation and I know sort of what we are experiencing together and then having that reflection about, well, what what kind of worship experience will help us to engage with the experience of life right now that will hold up the promises of God and, and recognize where we are. And so kind of give ourselves that room. Um, I kind of, I think about worship sometimes as making space uh, Mm -hmm. for, for what we need to reflect on, you know, and going back to the idea of the sing stunda, you know, that, that all of these hymns, are picked based on their, their theme on the, on the space they take on maybe the space that they bring us into so that we can really be there and, and, and what value there is and really, really living into what does it mean to be together on good Friday, you know, really living into what does it mean to be together um, on the anniversary of a congregation that there are these times in our lives where to be surrounded by that reality is important, not just for that moment, but for the moments that will come after. Yes. And I'm thinking when you said congregational anniversary, I'm flipping to the line in the, it's the service for New Year's and anniversary. And I'm pretty sure it's in that service. Yes. There's a prayer in here says, Lord Jesus Christ, we remember in your presence 
our losses and griefs, our hopes and treasures which the departing year has carried away, Mm. the disappointments we have known, the friends who are no longer with us and whose steps we shall hear no more. We pray for grace to cherish the spirit which brings good out of evil and which prevents adversities and sorrows from embittering our heart. That prayer in a congregational anniversary, you, you might even think, you know, with the permission of the family members, those whose steps we shall hear no more, we remember our brother so-and-so, our sister so-and-so, mm-hmm. our cousin so-and-so. You know, Name the people in the congregation who have been called to the Savior's more immediate presence since the last anniversary. In some congregations, they do that Easter dawn in the Easter morning yeah. service. And that's very powerful. We've done that at Moravian Music Festivals. It's been done at some synods, you know, to name those people who are no longer in our presence but are in the Savior's more immediate presence and give us space to, to hold on to the sorrow we feel and the, the conflicted feelings we feel. Mm-hmm. We're glad they're not suffering anymore, but daggone, we mm-hmm. miss them. And and maybe that's what worship needs to do is to provide space and room for us to own those conflicted feelings and and remember Jesus, my God, if it's possible, pass to make this cup pass from me. Thy will be done. He was there before we ever were. Well, we're coming up on our time, and so I want to just mm-hmm. thank you, Nola. You've been willing to share with us today on. Um, on music and how and how you see the layout of our music in the history of who we have been and in and in the present of who we are becoming. I'm really excited to see to see how some of this creativity will sort of blossom and grow as we enter into kind of a new ministry together. Yes. <laughs> it's just really great to have you with us. Um, and maybe we'll we'll have you again sometime. You can you can keep us in the loop about things that you're learning and that you're finding in your work with the music foundation. Very good. We will see where the, where the good Lord leads and, and, just, and it's going to be fun to follow. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you, brother and sister. Uh, Nola, it, it's absolutely a delight. And, and thank you. You not only bring, I think, the perspective of a historian and scholar and musician, but, but also, I, I think, as we were talking and just listening to you, uh, your pastoral heart and, and you're a preacher. And, and it was also a delight just <laughs> just to hear your enthusiasm and your spirit. And, and thank you for sharing so much of that with us and our listeners and, and with the church and the work you do. Nola. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. You can check us out on Anchor and on other podcast platforms. Drop us a line with ideas, feedback, or thoughts at moraviancreatedme at gmail.com. Also follow us on Instagram at createdme. Special thanks to David Melby Gibbons, Rachel Marie, and John Robinson for our theme music. Check them out on Facebook at Dust of the Saints and at rachelmarie.com. And don't forget to keep on creating and being creative.